What is the film about? In a nutshell, it's a story about a bunch of guys who plan a robbery and everything that can goes wrong, goes wrong for them. And the special thing about this movie, as opposed to other heist films, doesn't make it better than other heist films, but what's different about it is the fact that what would normally be given uh, 10 minutes in a, a regular heist film, basically. Okay, they sh you know, showing up at the rendezvous and dividing the loot, and then something weird happens. All right. At any heist film you're going to see, it's about 10 minutes towards the end. I decided to make the whole movie about that, about those 10 minutes, all right? Basically, this movie takes place in the course of an hour. Take a little longer than an hour to watch because I keep going back and forth on the story as far as, like, in time shifts. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to take, like, the movie clock that is usually ticking away in most movies where, like, you know, you're watching a character and 10 minutes pass. You go, well, it's been an hour and a half, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, I wanted to take the movie clock out and put a real-time clock in there. So every, you know, so like they're in their, this warehouse for an hour, so are you. Every minute for them is a minute for you. Every little bit of their anxieties. Cinema doesn't intrude and make things easier or smooth things along or move things along. You're stuck there with these guys in this claustrophobic, anxiety-ridden, pressure, uh, you know, very deadly situation with these guys for every second. And so uh, that's actually what the, the story's about in a nutshell. <laughs> It's the 30th anniversary of writer-director Quentin Tarantino's indie crime film, Reservoir Dogs. Released in October of 1992, Reservoir Dogs changed cinema forever. No, it wasn't the big hit that Pulp Fiction was, but it was clear from the first frames that Reservoir Dogs was something special. It established Tarantino as a new kind of director in Hollywood, along with the likes of the Coen brothers, Richard Linklater, Kevin Smith, and later on, Paul Thomas Anderson. Adrian and I discuss how this movie got made with the irreplaceable help of actor-producer Harvey Keitel, its script and soundtrack, and of course, its incredible cast, including Tim Roth, Michael Madsen, Steve Buscemi, Eddie Bunker, Lawrence Tierney, Chris Penn, and Quentin Tarantino himself as Mr. Brown. We also get into some of the films that inspired Reservoir Dogs, like Stanley Kubrick's The Killing, the original Taking of Pelham 123, and the Hong Kong crime thriller City on Fire. Are you going to bark all day long, little doggy, or are you going to bite? While you consider your answer, please check out our playback review of the 1992 crime film Reservoir Dogs. So, quick question. Did you see Pulp Fiction first, or did you see Reservoir Dogs first? Oh, I saw Pulp Fiction first. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Did you see it in the theater? No, I saw it on uh, video cassette after. And, and I had related this story <laughs> <laughs> on the show before. But, yeah, my dad had rented it. He didn't like it. Too much talking. Not enough killing. He said, here. <laughs> <laughs> so I watched it, and I thought it was great. I was 15. And I was like, man, this is what's up. You know what I'm saying? And it was thereafter that I, you know, became aware of somebody called Quentin Tarantino. Beforehand, I had no idea who it was. I, no magazines, no nothing. I had no idea who this guy was until I saw Pulp Fiction. And thereafter mm. is where I went to um, go check out his other movie prior to this, which is the subject of today's episode. You're right. Yeah, I uh, I remember seeing Reservoir Dogs on VHS. Mm. Was it VHS? I think it was VHS. Yeah. And this was a time where I was I was watching a lot of movies. I was renting a lot of movies. I was making my own dubs because I had two VCRs. You know how you do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, I, somehow I got on a kick of crime fiction. Mm -hmm. So I'm walking through like that section of the of, you know, like Hollywood video or something like that, whatever the local mom and pops video store was. And this is an instance where I think the name of the film truly stood out and, and got my attention. Reservoir Dogs. What is that? Mm -hmm. It's very striking. You know, the V and the uh, uh, the R's in it. Give it a certain kind of a it rolls off your tongue in a certain way. You've never heard of what this is, and yet you're like interested to find out what is a reservoir dog. And I guess we can, you know, we can probably, uh, you know, surmise that, you know, later on uh, in the discussion. But anyway, saw the title, rented the film, loved it, 
uh, immediately got what it was he was doing, immediately recognized Tarantino as someone like myself who was consuming a lot of pop culture mm. and whose own natural language was sprinkled with, you know, when he talked, his characters talked and they referenced other pop culture things like I did and like, you know, some of my friends did. Yeah. You know, we would quote movies or refer to films that we grew up on in the 70s, like Enter the Dragon or Black Belt Jones or... Um, or we knew about Sonny Chiba or Cynthia Rothrock or, <laughs> you know, uh, The Octagon, you know, Chuck Norris or <laughs> Iceberg Slim. Just these weird <laughs> references, you know, and I immediately recognized him as as someone of my of my, you know, of, of my own, like my, you know, like you know, part of my tribe. Yeah. And then after later rewatches, I really got into the filmmaking and. Uh, you know, some of the choices he made as, you know, as a director and in terms of how the film looked, uh, the actors and, and just the idea that this was a he was taking a genre or really a section of a genre, you know, the after the the crime has been committed and we meet back at the rendezvous spot, which normally is like, you know, 10 minutes in any average movie. Yeah. But this this is the basically the entire hour of yeah. of the of the time that they spend after the heist has gone wrong and they're at the rendezvous spot basically and in real time if you take out all the flashbacks I think it's about an hour's worth of footage yeah you know in this uh, this abandoned warehouse which I think was actually a, a mortuary um, where they where they shot it but and then when I and this is pre internet of course so. I'm reading, you know, magazines like Premiere and, and other things mm-hmm. and watching Entertainment Tonight and, and, these, and these kinds of things. And so when Pulp Fiction is announced, I'm ready for it. <laughs> I'm ready for it. It came out in 94 and me and my wife, we'd only been married a year, me and my wife and maybe a couple of friends went to see it. Mm-hmm. And we were, blow- we were blown away, man. Oh, wow. Yeah. Absolutely blown away. Um so yeah, I definitely saw it. This is one of the rare occasions where I actually did see something in kind of the order in which you know they were released, mm-hmm. you know, as, as as it were. But um, I like your dad though. He's like too much talking and not enough killing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was his criteria, if you will, man. But, but, but you know what's you know what's interesting about the time period that Reservoir Dogs was released, man. You know, and retroactively, I've gone back and read up on a lot of his, um, you know, Tarantino's body of work. And 1992 really represented a watershed moment for like independent film. Mm -hmm. Um, Because when they take the film to um, Sundance, you know, it really makes a huge splash amongst this other crop of other independent, young independent directors coming out as well. And clearly... QT is like the, the the star pupil, if you will. You know what I'm saying? Like Reservoir Dogs just makes that big of a splash. And just, I think it's also the time in which it was released too, because 1992 was also a very politically charged time. It was a time charged with pop culture. Like everything seemed to be electric almost on like a, razor's edge if you will in terms of culture so it's almost like tarantino is right there bam on the cusp Mm -hmm. with this Mm -hmm. very explosive movie you know and it's just like i I think it really hit at the right time in the zeitgeist because with it also taking place in la in 92 you know with not only the riots but what L.A. was in the early 90s, you know what I'm saying? Like Hollywood and just everything, it all kind of colludes together, you know what I'm saying? It's a very California movie. You have to take that into what else is going on in account with it. I, I'm, I'm getting jumbled here, but I just, I'm just, just trying to say that 92, when it was released, was a very hotbed of a time, if you will. You know what I'm saying? So it's almost like the, the culture was ripe for a movie like this, you know what I'm saying? I, I no, I understand exactly what you mean because like you said the early 90s was it was kind of a turning point too. Yeah. You know where, you know, like you said, you know, you had the LA riots, you know, you have the uh the rise of the Crips and the Bloods in California. Mhm. Was that the Gulf War? Was that 
Yeah, Go For It just ended. It had just ended in late 91. So you had guys coming back from that. Right, right. So you have the Gulf War and, you know, hip hop is becoming the predominant musical form in, t- in terms of uh, youth culture. Mm-hmm. You know, you got white and black kids, kids of all colors and shapes and sizes who are interested in hip hop. That's considered the golden age of hip hop. That's also the beginning of the alternative rock movement. So bands like Soundgarden and Mother Love Bone and Nirvana and Pearl Jam. And, and, and then also, too, from L.A., you know, the Stone Temple Pilots were from Los Angeles, as well as uh, quite a few other bands. So rock music is changing. Rap music is taking on another form, you know, different from it was than it was in the 80s. And also you're there's a 20 years, two decades, 20 years is is usually about the time when you can start cycling a particular uh, uh, decades influence in terms of music, fashion, whatever it is is usually when you can start referencing that previous decade. So this is 90, this movie comes out in 92, but all of its references are 71, 72, 74, you know. From the 70s. So, you know, that's hip to kind of, it's now it's not seen as old, now it's seen as hip to refer to something that's 20 years ago. Um, so all of that, all that lands right, at the, right at, the, uh, at the correct time. And one last point too. This also really does establish, like you said, and cement Tarantino as the star pupil or as the, uh, you know, uh, definitely the teacher's pet as far as uh, <laughs> a, a new kind of Hollywood director along the lines of a Coen brothers who came before him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then also like Richard Linklater, Kevin Smith with Clerks, and then later on like a Paul Thomas Anderson with Hard Eight and then eventually Boogie Nights and, and, uh, and other things. Yeah, exactly. And I would and I would also say that Tarantino kinda he he almost kicked the door open, you know, you know, in a hyperbolic way, you know, for that crop of young, energetic filmmakers, you know, to come in and start telling these different types of stories that were finding if not a populist bent, they were definitely gaining traction in terms of, hey, Here's more types of stories that can be told in this new um, era of Hollywood that we're entering. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And you can see it like like on screen, like, you know, even now when I rewatched it, um, you know, for this episode, man, God, like that movie just crackles. I mean, it seriously just crackles yeah. with the yeah. dialogue, yeah. the direction, just everything. And you're like. This is this guy's directorial debut. This is his screenwriting debut. How is he so young to be seemingly so accomplished? And, you know, over 20 years later, this movie is still a classic. No, 30 years later. I'm sorry. This is the 30th anniversary. Mm -hmm. So 30 years on, his debut is still just fantastic. I mean, it's just, man, it's just awesome. I remember the VHS um, box, the back of it said, a ferocious gangster epic. <laughs> right. <laughs> a ferocious gangster epic. And I remember when I got the VHS box, just that blurb right there was like, oh, okay, shit. I guess I'm, I guess I'm getting this then. That's awesome. Right. Hooka shaka, hooka, hooka, hooka shaka, hooka, hooka, hooka shaka, hooka. What you do to me when you hold me in your arms so tight? Well, to to your point, thirty years later, this this movie was released in October of ninety two, so it's almost thirty years to the month. Oh wow! Yeah, okay. When when, when you really when you really think about it, the film stars Harvey Keitel, who's also a producer on the on the movie. Yeah. Uh, Tim Roth, Michael Madsen, Chris Penn, Lawrence Tierney, Eddie Bunker, and then Quentin Tarantino himself as Mr. Brown. A little too close to Mr. Shit, but go ahead. A little too close to Mr. Shit. (laughs) 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 
it had a budget of about a million and two million and a half dollars and it made about three million dollars in the box office so it wasn't a huge hit it was a success but it wasn't a huge hit yeah but like you said it did premiere at sundance and then it got picked up for distribution by miramax and then that's you know that's how we came to came to see it in in theaters and on VHS and and for anyone who's never seen the movie it's about six criminals who are trying to pull off a jewelry store heist mm-hmm. that goes terribly terribly wrong. There, there's a big shootout with the cops. Several of the criminals are killed. Some of them escape. And again, the whole movie takes place at the rendezvous spot where the guys who escaped you know have uh, have met back up and they begin to realize that they were set up and that someone in their group is a rat. Yes. And and then everything else in the movie, you know, from that point on is happening either in that uh, in that abandoned warehouse, the rendezvous spot, or they do flashbacks to kind of fill in some of the gaps on who these characters are and how they know each other and how they kind of came together. And all of it is just expertly done. I mean, again, for a young guy who's oh yeah, this is his his directorial debut and it's just expertly done and just woven perfectly um, the dialogue, like Adrian said, is just crisp. Mm-hmm. The action, when they have action, is it is explosive and violent and chaotic and scary. Yeah. And you are at once uh, wanting to hang out with these guys because they are so interesting and so charismatic and they seem so normal in between these violent acts and in between, in bet- in between these criminal acts. But at the same time, you know, they are capable of they'll kill one another. You know, they'll kill, you know, innocent people if they have to. And and also, too, there's no real protagonist in this movie. Right. I mean, you could kind of say that Mr. Orange, you know, a.k.a. Freddie, the undercover cop, is maybe the protagonist. But he's kind of a piece of shit, too, in a way, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and, and it's so interesting to your point, though, you're talking about how you kind of want to hang out with them and simultaneously they are kind of scumbags. No, no, kind of. They are scumbags. Mm-hmm. Remember that scene later in the in the movie where Mr. Orange and Mr. White are casing out the storefront for the for the heist, and they're talking like, "Okay, let's run through the plan," and they're running through the plan, and you're just kind of like hanging out with them while they do this, right? And then Mr. White goes into, "Yeah, so if if you get you know the manager who thinks he's a real cowboy." You gotta break him in, cut off his little finger, you know, and do this and do and you and just kind it just kind of shifts from, oh man, <laughs> we, we we were just we were just you know talking about the plan and now you get into like some violent type stuff, man. Yes, yeah. And then it's almost like he goes dark and then it comes out like I'm hungry, man. Let's go get a taco. Okay, we're hanging out again. Okay, that's crazy. Right, right, <laughs> right. Let's go over it. Where are you? I stand outside and guard the door. I don't let anybody go in or go out. Mr. Brown. Mr. Brown waits in the car. It's parked across the street. It's like in the signal, then he pulls up in front of the store. Mr. Blonde and Mr. Blue. Crowd control. We handle customers and employees. That girl's ass. It's sitting right here on my dick. <laughs> Myself and Mr. Pink? Uh, you two take the manager in the back and make him give you the diamonds. Uh, we're there for those stones, period. Since no display cases are being fucked with, no alarm should go off. We're out of there in two minutes, not one second longer. What happens if the manager won't give you the diamonds? When you're dealing with a store like this, they're insured up the ass. They're not supposed to give you any resistance whatsoever. If you get a customer or an employee who thinks she's Charles Bronson, take the butt of your gun and smash their nose in. Drops from right to the floor. Everyone jumps. He falls down screaming, blood squirts out of his nose. Freaks everybody out. Nobody says fucking shit after that. You might get some bitch talk shit to you. But give her a look like you're going to smash her in the face next. Watch her shut the fuck up. (laughs) Now, if it's a manager, that's a different story. The manager's no better than to fuck around. So if you get one that's giving you static, he probably thinks he's a real cowboy. So you got to break that son of a bitch in two. If you want to know something he won't tell you, cut off one of his fingers. The little one. Then tell him his thumbs next. After that, I'll tell you if he wears ladies' underwear. I'm hungry. Let's get a taco. And and Tarantino talks about that in some of the post interviews that he's done uh, after the film came out, where he talks about how. 
because these guys are are so charismatic and interesting and they seem like regular guys who watch movies and TV shows and read the paper and go to ball games and go grab a taco with one another because they seem like such good hangs when they reach these points of this incredible violence the audience member is kind of a co-conspirator like you you you've already signed on to go along for the ride yeah so you, you know, at the great at, at the, the scene, the, the torture scene at the end of the movie uh, with uh, Mr. Blonde and with uh, with the cop that he's got uh, held hostage. By the time you get to the ear cutting scene, you've been seduced by the fact that Michael Madsen is so entertaining listening to Steeler's Wheel and dancing. And you're so entertained by his dancing and how and how ridiculous he is that by the time he gets to cutting off the ear. Again, you're a co-conspirator. You're a lo- you have to go along for the ride. You know, you can't you can't back away and say, "Oh my god. Oh my god. No, no, no. It was cool when he was dancing, right? When he pulled out the switchblade, it was mm-hmm. cool, wasn't it?" Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, you're you're definitely right, man. L- let's talk a little bit about this movie and how it got made because that was one of the things when I first saw it, that was one of the things that I immediately became just like insatiable is finding out you know mm. who, who wrote this how did they come up with it what does this mean and then when Pulp Fiction comes what does this mean you know because some of the characters are overlapping and is this you know some complete universe together or whatever but yeah the story was conceived by uh Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery mm-hmm. and the rumor that I've had I've heard is is that they came up with this huge kind of 600 page script or this huge story and then broke it into three chunks. And so you've got true romance and maybe natural born killers here. And then you've got reservoir dogs here. And then you've got pulp fiction here. Yeah. And that's why some of the characters overlap, like, you know, Scagnetti, who's the, uh, the parole officer Mm -hmm. for, uh, for, uh, for Vic Vega, you know, Scagnetti shows up in natural born killers. Right. Uh, played by uh, Tom Sizemore. Yeah. And then you've got, you know, Alabama gets mentioned, I believe in Pulp Fiction, and then Alabama is a character that's in um, True Romance. You know, that's isn't that the name of the character that... Um, yeah, Patricia Arquette. Patricia Arquette plays and... Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, um, Mr. White mentions her in uh, Reservoir Dogs, you know, when he's asking when... Um, does he meet up with Joe? That's right. Thank you. <laughs> I've yeah. seen the movie. But <laughs> uh, yeah, um, when he meets up with Joe and Joe's asks, hey, so what's going on? What about what, what you been up to? Uh, well, you know, um, me and Alabama didn't work out. You push that man woman thing too long, you know, just goes nah, just goes wrong. You know, that right. type of thing. Right. Right. And then, of course, you have the Vega brothers, Victor Vega and Vincent Vega. Vincent Vega is in Pulp Fiction. Vic Vega is in Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. Um, and um, and I immediately picked that part up. And I, from what I understand, there was a proposed uh, Vega brothers movie that Quentin Tarantino was going to do that never got made. Um, but then also, too, like there's another overlap, which I didn't catch right away. And then I was just as I was doing some reading and poking around. So Mr. White's character's name is Larry Dimmick. Yeah. But Tarantino's character in Pulp Fiction is Jimmy Dimmick. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So so the assumption could be that they're related in some way, maybe brothers, maybe cousins. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one goes, you know, completely into a life of crime and the other one tries to kind of go straight, but is still associated with a bunch of scumbags like Jules Winfield and Vincent Vega. Uh you know, uh, still. And then even beyond that, um, there's a point in Pulp Fiction where the wolf, Winston Wolf, who is played by Harvey Keitel, calls someone named Joe while the uh, Jules and Vincent are cleaning up the car. And we could presume that if this is some kind of a prequel, that that's Joe Cabot mm. that he calls mm-hmm. to have the car, you know, mashed and crushed up so that, you know, the evidence is no longer obtainable. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, just... All of that, I was just, I was in for all of that. What does this mean? Who is this supposed to be a reference to? I love the fact that um, you know that they you know they talked about songs in the movie and they talked about you know women that they dated and experiences that they had. 
um, and just all of it um, was just great. But this was based again on a, on a story by Roger Avery and Quentin Tarantino. Um, they wrote the script, or Tarantino writes the script, and the script gets into the hands, if I'm not mistaken, of Lawrence Bender, who's the producer on the movie. Yeah. And Bender, who is an actor, uh, says, hey, I'm going to help you raise money for this. Had never done it before. He takes the script and gives it to a woman in um, uh, in his acting class who knows Harvey Keitel's wife. And, and the script gets to Harvey Keitel. And Cartel, Harvey Keitel loves it and then calls Quentin Tarantino on the phone and says, hey, I want to help you get this made. I want to help you do this. I want to be a part of it. And that's kind of how it happens. Mm. And, you know, Avery and Bender and, and, and Tarantino, you know, they never made a movie before, you know, none of this stuff. So, you know, Bender's trying to raise money. He raises some money and, um, and they, you know, they get the film into production. They start casting it. And then Harvey Keitel tells them, because they're casting in Los Angeles, he says, you know, there are a lot of really great actors in New York. And they're like, well, yeah, that's great. But, you know, we don't have the money to go to New York. And then Harvey Keitel says, look, I, I want this, you know, I want, I'm sick of this shit. I want this movie to be good. You know, I'll pay for it. And so he pays for the team to go to New York and to cast some of these New York actors. And, and it's that trip to New York where they cast Steve Buscemi, Tim Roth, and Michael Madsen. Mm. And so, you know, just how I really feel like to a great extent that uh, Harvey Keitel really is the hero of the film in terms of it getting made and it being you know, the piece of art that, you know, that that we see later on, because, you know, you just wouldn't have had that Mr. Pink character for, you know, that Stu Buscemi plays and and so on and so forth. But um, were there any other tidbits that you that you remembered or that you knew from the making of the film, uh, like trivia is surrounding that, uh, you know, the, the making of it? Um, I, I, you know, I was trying to think about that, but I did want to mention one one other thing in regards to Kaitel. You know, with this being 92, uh, he also, you know, makes um, Bad Lieutenant um, that same year, um, directed by Abel Ferreira. So Keitel definitely has his foot inside of, you know, independent filmmaking, you know, uh, really heavy. So just for him to be that much of a a guardian angel, if you will, Mm. you know, to get this film made is just extraordinary, you know, and to have it you know, happened to Tarantino and Bender and Avery just kind of out of the, almost out of the blue. I'm not sure that that would even happen today, perhaps not in that same type of circumstance, you know, so that, that's just, you know, incredible, man. Um, Mm -hmm. As far as trivia, I did want to mention, you know, I'm going to bring it up. um, The allegation that people, you know, raise against it that, oh, well, they just kind of ripped off the um, the story from City on Fire, the uh, 1988 movie directed by Ringo Lum, you know, which stars Chow Yun-Fat, um, Danny Lee, and um, other um, Hong Kong actors. And while, yes, that is true, like the... The, the, um, the, uh, the story beats. A lot of the story beats are similar. Yeah, and the naming of each of the... Um, criminals that perpetrate the robbery, you know, um, different, I think, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember if it was, because I have the movie, I meant to rewatch it before we record it, but I think also in City on Fire, each of them is named a, a certain color. I don't know if it's the same colors, but they're named certain colors or maybe numbers to differentiate themselves instead of using their real names amongst each other. So, for sure, you know, um, Tarantino you know, does an homage to that, you know. Um, and as far as, you know, other other things, man, uh, just I, 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 I like the way that it plays with, like, you know, flashbacks and, you know, time in a Rashomon type of way, mm-hmm. which almost has become a descriptor of a type of device. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, you yeah. Know, in addition to the, the actual movie you know what i'm saying and for some reason man anytime that rashomon device is employed man it almost always works man it almost always works and makes it entertaining you know what i'm saying like oh okay 
Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. A- absolutely. Even in sitcoms when they do it, it still kind of works. Yeah. And many sitcoms will do it. Well, no, you actually brought the basketball in the house and then we were playing and then you knocked the lamp over. Oh, no, I didn't knock the lamp over. I was getting, the, you know, and then it's, this person tells their version of the story. You're right, right, right. <laughs> and and it, it kind of it kind of speaks to the whole. You know, your version, my version, and then the truth, you know, kind of kind of a thing. But um, but you, as far as like you're talking about the uh, uh, Kaitel and some of the actors, Kaitel, Bad Lieutenant came out that same year. And I remember renting Bad Lieutenant after I saw Reservoir Dogs because I liked Reservoir Dogs so much. Yeah. Uh, and, and seeing it then. But prior to that, he had already done Mean Streets. Uh, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, Taxi Driver. And I think the year before in 91, he was in Thelma and Louise. And he was in King of New York, also directed by Ferreira as well. Right. And uh, Steve Buscemi was in King of New York. Remember you pointed out he had that bit part? <laughs> he shows up. <laughs> Steve Buscemi? Yeah. <laughs> yep. And, uh, and Buscemi had done some stuff. He had done some a lot of TV. He was in Barton Fink. You know, he was in uh, Miller's Crossing. He had a small part in Miller's Crossing. Okay, yeah. So, you know, he had, he had done some stuff prior to this. So, uh, but this was definitely, you know, the first time we ever see him showcased. Yeah. As one of the, uh, you know, like a, a part of a large ensemble, uh, so to speak. But um, what did you think, man, of the soundtrack to this movie? Because all these songs were 20 plus years old, but in a weird way, so this is Tarantino's debut, and he chooses some really great needle drops. Certainly, the most famous being Steeler's Wheel, stuck in the middle, which is you know played during the uh, the ear cutting scene. Sure, but uh, but there's a bunch of other great ones too. And I had never heard like Little Green Bag before. Mm-hmm. Certainly, I'd heard they put the lime in the coconut, which is played at the end. I'd heard that before all the time. Yeah, uh, and, and and quite a few others, but. Didn't this the soundtrack feel retro, but also kind of hip in a way too at the same time? Yes, and it goes back to what you were saying, you know, a few moments ago, just about you know the '90s just being a time of like bringing that stuff around again. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's it's mm-hmm. that previous generation, 20 years onward, you know, finally coming back, coming back around. And there was a movement in music itself, you know, to kind of you know integrate that stuff also. So it was right on time. And it fit too. Like, okay, that song Joe Tex with I gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Give it to me. Yeah, yo. Give it to me now. I gotcha. Uh-huh. Uh, you thought I didn't see you now, didn't you? Uh-huh. Uh, you try to sneak by me now, didn't you? Uh-huh. Uh, now give me what you promised me. Give it here. Come on. It's, it's describing what they're doing in the scene. Like, they bring the cop in out the trunk and they're kicking him around. Like, you gonna tell us what you, we got you. We gonna tell you, gonna tell us what, what you know. I don't know anything. I, I still got you anyway. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And just, <laughs> and waiting to just like, give it here while they're trying to elicit information from him. Just give it here. Come on. Right. Give it here. <laughs> <laughs> Just great, man. I, f- I found myself, uh, after seeing the movie again, I found myself humming that, like, at intervals, like, just randomly, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I thought so, too, and I, I enjoyed it as well. And, um, you know, it's funny, the one thing about that particular scene uh, that stood out to me and it always does is that's Tarantino's famous shooting from inside of the, of a car trunk, you know, up at the people who are opening the trunk. Yes. You know, he does it again in, uh, in death proof. I believe he does it in Pulp fiction as well. When they're getting the shot, they wish you that shotguns for this deal, you know? Right. And he kill bill. And he kill bill as well. Yeah. So, uh, it is kind of a, kind of a signature signature move for him, but yeah, the soundtrack was really, like I said, and, and you know, and, and very cool, you know, how he he has Stephen Wright as this DJ on this LA LA radio station, and it's a '70s weekend, so they're playing all of these kind of great songs from the '70s, and and a lot of them, 
you know, they're not going to be your Fleetwood Macs or your Eagles or something like that. They're going to be things that are a little odder and a little more uh, one hit wonder and a little off, more off of the beaten path. Um, but I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. And speaking of music, one of the things about this movie that I really didn't care for at the time when I first saw it was the whole Madonna like a virgin story told at the breakfast table. Yeah. I was just yeah. like, okay, this is juvenile. This is stupid. This doesn't add anything. This is just so that somebody can say something outrageous that people will talk about. Like mm-hmm. I literally saw that as this is almost like, you know, non-virtue signaling. It's just I'm trying to let people know that I'm gonna I'm talking about something outrageous that I want them to remember. As opposed to all of the other things that happen in the movie that are outrageous and that do get discussed and that does that do happen where you like, you know, oh, he kills this black girl and you know, she's like 19 or 20 years old. And he's bam, bam. He just takes his gun. Bam, bam. You know, and um, and even the fact that Mr. Orange, who's been shot in the belly by this woman that who they tried to carjack. Mm-hmm. And then he shoots her and he's bleeding, you know, throughout from almost literally from frame one of the movie. And it's like, OK, how's this guy not died yet? Right. <laughs> you know. But uh but anyway, um let's talk about the cast, man, because you know, we talked about Kaitel, we talked about Tarantino as Mr. Brown and Busimi as Mr. Pink, but we've got Lawrence Tierney, who's a you know very well known kind of a BC level actor, mm-hmm. you know, who been around since the black and white days of, of, of television. Yeah. Uh, you got Eddie Bunker, who actually was a criminal. Who a criminal, had, yes. Yeah, he who had done time, and I think he was kind of a consultant on the movie. Uh, <laughs> in, you know, in addition to you know playing the part of uh, Mister Blue. Yeah. And then you've got um, Tim Roth, who plays Freddie. You know, the undercover cop. And am I missing somebody? Uh, Matson, who's Mister Blonde. Nice guy, Eddie, played by nice Chris guy Penn. Eddie. Yeah. yeah, Daddy's gonna be. Daddy's gonna be pissed. Daddy's gonna be pissed when he gets to the warehouse. <laughs> no, my my favorite one was. Stop throwing that gun in my dad. <laughs> <laughs> For a guy named Nice Guy Eddie, he was so so like scary and so menacing and so intimidating. Yeah. Uh, now, why don't you tell me what really, really happened? happened? And he kind of spit when he said it, you yes. know, by like by accident. And it was like, oh, God. Yeah. Out of the fucking blue. Now, why don't you tell me what really happened? Yeah. Yeah. That was that was really great. <laughs> why don't you tell me what really happened? What the hell for? It'd just be more bullshit. This man set us up. Dad, I'm sorry, but I don't know what the hell's happening. It's all right, Eddie, I do. What the fuck are you talking about? That lump of shit's working with the LAPD. I don't have the slightest fucking idea what you're talking about. Joe, Joe, I don't know what you think you know, but you're wrong. Like hell I am. Joe, trust me on this. You've made a mistake. He's a good kid. I understand you're hot. You're super fucking pissed. We're all real emotional, but you're barking up the wrong tree. I know this man, he wouldn't do that. You don't know Jack's shit, I do. The cocksucker tipped off the cops and a Mr. Brown and Mr. Blue killed. Mr. Blue is dead? Dead as diligent. How do you know all this? I was the only one I wasn't 100% on. I should have my fucking head examined going ahead when I wasn't 100%. That's your proof? You don't need proof when you have instinct. I ignored her before, but no more. You lost your fucking mind. Joe, you're making a terrible mistake I'm not gonna let you make. Come on, guys. Nobody wants this. We're supposed to be fucking professionals. I look. It's been quite a long time. A lot of jobs. There's no need for this, man. Let's just put our guns down and let's settle this the fucking conversation. Joe, if you kill that man, you die next. Repeat, if you kill that man, you die next. Larry, we have been friends, and you respect my dad and I respect you, but I will put fucking bullets right through your heart. You put that fucking gun down now. God damn you, Joe. Don't make me do this. Larry, stop pointing that fucking gun at my dad! 
And you were talking about a movie that inspired some of the story beats in this movie, uh, City on Fire. Yeah. Ringo Lamb's movie. But also uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Killing was an inspiration for it. And uh, The Taking of Pelham 123, which came out in 1974. Yeah, yeah. In that movie, they had colors for names. It was Mr. Gray, Mr. Green, Mr. Blue. It was four of them. You know, and Robert Shaw was was the leader. So that that was another place. If it's not City on Fire, that was definitely another place where he adopted and it kind of took that whole colors as names so that the, the characters don't know each other's real names. They don't know where each other's from. If anybody gets caught, they don't really know anything about the people that they're working with other than mm-hmm. the main person who puts the whole the kind of the whole job together. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but those were those were other films that kind of inspired uh, this one. We're going to be using aliases on this job. Under no circumstances do I want any one of you to relate to each other by your Christian names. And I don't want any talk about yourself personally. That includes where you've been, your wife's name, where you might have done time, or a bank maybe arrived in, say, Petersburg. All I want you guys to talk about, if you have to, is what you're gonna do. That should do it. Hear your names. Mr. Brown, Mr. White, Mr. Blonde, Mr. Blue, Mr. Orange, Mr. Pink. Why am I Mr. Pink? Because you're a faggot, all right? <laughs> Why can't we pick our own colors? No way, no way. Tried it once, it doesn't work. You get four guys all fighting over who's gonna be Mr. Black. But they don't know each other, so nobody wants to back down. No way, I pick, you're Mr. Pink. Be thankful you're not Mr. Yellow. Yeah, yeah but Mr. Brown, that's a little too close to Mr. Shit. Well, Mr. Pink sounds like Mr. Pussy. How about if I'm Mr. Purple? I mean, that sounds good to me, I'll, I'll be Mr. Purple. You're not Mr. Purple. Some guy on some other job is Mr. Purple. You're Mr. Pink. Who cares what your name is? Yeah, that's easy for you to say. You're Mr. White. You have a cool sounding name. All right, look, if it's no big deal to be Mr. Pink, you want to trade? Hey, nobody's trading with anybody. This ain't a goddamn fucking city council meeting, you know. Now listen up, Mr. Pink. There's two ways you can go on this job. My way or the highway. Now, what's it gonna be, Mr. Pink? Jesus Christ, Joe. Fucking forget about it. It's beneath me, you know. I'm Mr. Pink. Let's move on. I'll move on when I feel like it. You always got, got the goddamn message. And, and you know, funny, the, the, you know, we, you almost can't talk about Reservoir Dogs without talking about Pulp Fiction as kind of a pair. And... The idea that in both movies, Tarantino is taking very specific genre moments and very specific genre uh, stories, and he just turns them on their head. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's always the meeting back up at the rendezvous spot, you know, when something like this happens. You know, some universal place that everybody knows to go to, you know, make sure you're not being tailed, all of that. But when they get there, everything goes Go, you know, gets turned on its head. Everything goes crazy. Yeah. Same thing in Pulp Fiction where, oh, the boxer who throws the fight. Well, we've seen that a dozen times in old movies. But in this one, you know, he ends up being chased by this gangster and they almost get raped by these two rednecks. You know, uh, the guy, the the hood who's got to take out the boss's wife and then he starts having a thing for the boss's wife, but she ODs on heroin, you know. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, you know, the two hit men who were sent to go get something that was taken from their boss and something crazy happens. They don't just execute the people who took it. Something crazy happens. And one of them has, you know, this life altering moment where he says, I'm walking away from the life. I'm going to roam the earth and have adventures like Kane. <laughs> <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, yeah, just it's it's just almost like I said, impossible to not talk about uh uh, both films at the same time as it relates to reservoir dogs and pulp fiction uh adrian do you think well let me ask you this what do you think reservoir dogs pre-pulp fiction impact was if any hmm. um again like i had said at near the top of the episode i really think that in terms of independent filmmaking although there had been a burgeoning movement of you know 
independent filmmaking for years prior to this, of course, this was the year where it said, hey, these are now while I don't think it ushered in like a, a new wave like that of the 70s and that crop of directors and writers, mm -hmm. it definitely did single uh, signal an era of these young independent directors making, you know, their type of films themselves, you know, um, getting ready to come to the fore, you know, in Hollywood. And I think its impact um, prior to Pulp Fiction was just that, you know, because when you read other anecdotes around it and, you know, what even the participants themselves have, you know, written about like uh, Tarantino, um, Robert Rodriguez, when he was coming into the fold as well, and other you know independent directors at that time, they were all like, look, mm -hmm. with Reservoir Dogs, you know, Quentin was the darling. And it was because of that for like a couple of years after that, for, for better or for worse in some instances, for better in that it opened the door for some of us to actually get in. You know what I'm saying? And once we were in, you know, we were able to, you know, kind of find our way in some regard and, you know, um, make some movies for these studios, you know, before that kind of period elapsed. Because when it elapsed and collapsed on itself, that door kind of shut back. You know what I'm saying? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Just the impact was it opened that door and got for a period this little envelope of time where it was like, okay, you know, you got some young, fresh voices coming in and let's see what we can do. You know what I mean? And, and you know, and I, I may not have the, you know, I may not have all of this quite right in terms of timelines per se, but, you know, you go like 10 years or so after Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs and these films and, and others in the in the 90s, you know, like Robert Rodriguez's uh, uh, Desperado. Desperado, yeah. And, um, and you know, uh, films about Richard Linkletter and Clerks and you know and, and Fargo and things of that nature but by the time you get about 10 years away from that then you get back to where blockbusters are really starting to take over the uh the box office again you have Jurassic Park in the late 90s in the early 2000s you have Lord of the Rings you know you have uh other really big movies the prequels are coming out at that point mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, the Star Wars prequels so you have these really big popcorn populist uh, super over the top, you know, then probably 50 to a hundred dollar, hundred million dollar movies that are starting to, to take over. And you still have certainly have independent films, but you know, uh, it's nothing like the Pulp Fiction days of Pulp Fiction or Boys in the Hood or films like that, where they're made on very small budgets by very singular talents with a singular vision and a, and a, a very specific, uh, story that they wanted to tell and how they wanted to tell it, so to speak. And giving and giving chances to these young directors, I mean, very young directors. I mean, if they're not in their late twenties, you're talking directors as young as twenty one or even twenty two. In the case of like a John Singleton, right? So, you know that, and that's another reason why this period has that energy as well. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, this movie. As, as it is Quentin Tarantino's debut as a writer and as a director is also the debut of his uh, collaboration with Sally Mankey, the editor, mm. uh, which he worked on many films until she passed away, right? Yes, she did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she passed away. But and I know you're a you know, you're a, someone who follows like cinematographers and editors. And, and, and that's 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 an area of interest for you as a cinephile. Do you think that. Tarantino stuck with Sally Mankey? That's two questions. One, do you think he stuck with Sally Mankey? One, because she got his aesthetic? Mm -hmm. Or do you think to some extent it almost becomes like a rabbit's foot where if you have success with someone who kind of gets it, you almost don't want to change the formula. You know, you want to you don't go you don't want to try new Coke for your second film or your third film. Look, old Coke was working great. <laughs> <laughs> so it almost becomes kind of a good luck charm to stay with some of the same personnel, even though he did change cinematographers, I think, from, Pulp, uh, from between Pulp Fiction and uh, and Reservoir Dogs. Mm -hmm. And then also, too, oddly enough, there seems to be a proliferation of female film editors, you know, more so than there are like female, female directors or female anything else. Maybe not screenwriters, but certainly in terms of directors, you see a lot of female 
editors working in feature films today. Is that, is, am I off on that observation? No, and in fact, you segue right into the answer I was gonna give. Um, in answer to both your questions, I was gonna say both. Um, I believe that um, Tarantino probably saw Mankey as, not only as a very capable editor who gets his aesthetic and his storytelling flow and everything, his narrative, if you will, but also as a as a good luck, as something like I have this in place right here. I know this component in my in my production is solid. No need to change it. We good. You know what I'm saying? And I, it's almost like Minky to Tarantino is where somebody like a Thelma Schoonmacher is to a Scorsese. Mm-hmm. You know, like don't don't change it. And it's noticeable when you do change it. You know what I'm saying? Because it's not the same. It's not the same, you know? And it's a reason why in both, you know, the case of Schoonmacher and Minky, why they had such long working relationships with their respective directors and why those movies look and feel the way that they do. You know what I'm saying? Right. I think you, I think you're probably right, man. Um, Cause, like you said, you know, and it's that way in music production too, where, mm, yeah, when you have a hit song, or if you have a song that's popular, if you have an album that does well, and you work with an engineer and with a mixer, and a mastering house, you kind of want to use those same elements again if you can, if you can get them. You know, they're usually freelancers, like like every other uh, creative uh, crafts person who works in entertainment and in the arts. But if you can get them again, you know, you want to have them. You know, if you go out on the road with a particular band and you have a great tour, you know, that's the reason why, you know, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, you know, stayed together for as long as they did. Um, why Prince's band, Prince would change his band, but he would keep them for good long periods of time before he would cycle them out yeah. and bring in new players. But, you know, Elton John's played with the same people for years. And, you know, the Rolling Stones, you know, after the uh, drummer passed away, you know, they were, you know what I'm saying? It's just keeping the same personnel um, uh, is is something that a lot of creatives do. And I do think, I have been told that it is a lot of times out of a kind of superstition. You know, it's like if we change it, we you know, we're changing the formula. People want Oreos and famous Amos cookies. They don't want you to do something a little different. <laughs> <you know? laughs> yeah. <laughs> but going back to uh, Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs, man, so... I, and I always make this comparison. Is Reservoir Dogs the off the wall to Pulp Fiction's thriller? Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that, man, that that analogy, as much as you use it, man, is, yeah. has never been as more apropos in this case than ever. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you have that, that, that first, the, you have the big one. And the big one is great, but the one before it has a grittiness and has a has a hunger and and has a uh, mm-hmm. uh, a ferocity to it that is just like wow, you know. But then you get to the big one and you get okay, you get this creative person who is at the height of all of their 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 potential powers and their collaborators are, at, are all everybody's vibrating at the same frequency, and you get this undeniable piece of art that not only do critics and do other uh, creatives recognize, but the, but the, you know, the public at large says, Oh, this is great. And and that one, the big one actually becomes more a part of pop culture forever. It is referenced mm. forever. Thriller is referenced forever, you know, uh, and, and Pulp Fiction is referenced forever, literally forever. I will, I will quote Pulp Fiction before this week is out. Yeah, you know, in, in some way, shape, or form. So, absolutely. Last question. This is a tough one, man. And I, I didn't, I didn't text you ahead of time to give you any kind of uh, 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 an opportunity to think about it. But, um, as a debut from a writer and director, mm-hmm. is Reservoir Dogs the strongest debut from a single writer? Not a single writer and director, but from a writer and a director. So. You got to think about it like something like Citizen Kane. Yes. Uh, Night of the Living Dead, George Romero. Mm-hmm. Eraserhead, David Lynch. Yeah. Uh, Blood Simple, the Coen Brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thief, Michael Mann. Mm. 
Uh, the aforementioned Boys in the Hood, John Singleton. Yeah. The Shawshank Redemption, Frank Darabont. Mm. And that's based on a novel, but still, it you know he was writer and director. He wrote the screenplay and he directed the film, and then also Jordan Peele's Get Out. Oh yeah, sure, absolutely, absolutely. So is it the? I don't want to say the greatest because the greatest, you know, that's a different connotation. Yeah, yeah. Is it the strongest? You know, is it is it is it the one, so to speak? I'm not sure if it is, I mean, it is very strong. And, you know, those movies that you named as examples, you know, um, there are a couple of them in there that are just all time. I mean, all time greats, you know. So definitely I would hesitate, you know, to like you said, to, you know, say it was the greatest. But as far as the strongest, I would I would definitely say yes, just because like not only is its impact still felt, but the telltale sign that a movie or a piece of art, a piece of work is classic is that regardless of the time it was made in, it still seems as fresh, as um, resonant, and as strong as when it was first released. You find that with Citizen Kane. You're talking about a movie that was, you know, released in 1941, but it still has the vibrancy, like this energy coming from it, this mm. force of power coming from this young 20-something director in Orson Welles, you know? And in, in a lot of these works that are considered classic, that's what it is. And you can say the same thing absolutely for Reservoir Dogs as well, man. Certainly. Yeah, it's 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 a hard it's a hard one to argue against because you know, like Citizen Kane definitely changed cinema. Right. In terms of its impact, Night of the Living Dead established a genre, like literally wrote the book on a genre. Yeah. Um, you know, something like that and maybe um the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, wrote the book on what modern horror is to this very day, you know, some 50 some odd, 60 years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eraserhead changed independent cinema, you know, or had an effect on independence. I won't say it changed it, but it had an effect on it. Blood Simple was just a great genre mm. film, just a great mm. genre mm. film by two auteur, you know, uh, uh, creatives. Thief, again, a great genre film. Just a great genre film. Boys in the Hood, again, kind of kind of changed the genre from just being hood movies to, you know, having this heart and, and about family and about, you know. About community. Yeah. Community and, and the relationship between a father and a son and that key, that key moment between when, you know, the streets get to your kid before you can get to your kid. And, and do you mm. have, you know, do you have a time? Is there time for you to to try to stop that from happening? Shawshank Redemption. Again, it's just a, a great genre film. It's a prison film, but it's also about redemption, you know, um, and get out again. Genre, you know, just took a genre and, and turned it on its head, so to speak, you know, and then also infused it with, you know, some uh, some social and political satire as well. Mm hmm. But I do think that I don't think Pulp Fiction certainly wasn't the atomic bomb that Citizen Kane was. But I do think that of all of the folks that I just listed here, nobody has more consistently come back to the table with interesting, Mm. fresh vibrant material no other writer director has continued to churn out consistently fresh vibrant films in the way that quentin tarantino has yeah i can't argue with that you none of none of them have they just haven't done it maybe the coen brothers might be of of the examples that i gave i'm sure there are others that we could think of but maybe the coen brothers might be the one you might say well between you know raising arizona and fargo and blood simple and um, Barton Fink, and you know they've, and and even you know even the uh, even No Country for Old Men, No and, Country for Old Men, and the uh, the bro, what was the movie, the brothers, uh, uh, bro, bro, brother where art thou, oh brother, brother where art thou, thou? yeah, oh brother where art thou, 
they've definitely been consistent. They might be the only ones on this of the examples that I gave that you could compare the careers to where they continue to impress audiences and impress critics and to put out really great material um, consistently after, you know, Blood Simple and after Raising Arizona and certainly after Fargo. But I just don't think anyone has done it quite to the level that uh, the QT has. Um, and I think for that, you do have to kind of make the argument that that, you know, Reservoir Dogs really is the strongest debut because uh, nobody's nobody's done it like QT since. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that, Joe. That concludes this episode of Sidebar Forever, hosted by Dwight Clark, Swain Hunt, and Adrian Johnson. You can find us online at sidebarforever.com. Any emails or questions can be directed to us at sidebarforever at gmail.com. And also, subscribe to us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram.